Welcome to the Huntback Country Podcast. This is a Monday Minute episode, which are shorter, more informal episodes where we answer your listener questions. And today I'm running solo. Steve and I are getting ready to take off to Sheep Show. Uh, we have a booth there for Exa Mountain Gear, and there's just a lot going on. So I'm recording this solo uh, and going to try and keep it semi short. But wanted to dive into some of the specific questions that I've kind of had on the list from you guys, from listeners that are questions kind of for me directly, um, which is the, obviously a perfect opportunity to tackle those as I am solo today. So to dive right into it, um, let me go ahead and read this email that came through. This listener said, I've been listening to your podcast from day one and just wanted to say thank you. Your information and unbiased reviews have been super helpful. I have been re-listening to your episodes on suppressors because I am getting ready to purchase one, but I had a quick question. In your episode with Silencer Central, you said you were getting a Banish suppressor from them, but I've never heard you do a review on it. So have you ever used it? Was it any good? I know you've spoken I know you have spoken highly of the Thunderbeast suppressors, but those have been pretty hard for me to source lately, so I won't just curious and so I'm just curious about and looking into other options. All right, so great question. Yes, we have done that podcast with uh, the guys from Silencer Central. They hopped on here to tell us about their process, how it worked, and wanted to walk us through that. And we got a banish suppressor from them. Um, I have not shot it. A reason being is I got it um, just not too long ago, I think in late November, early December. Um, you know, the ATF process, there was a lot of optimism back when we recorded that podcast with Silencer Central. It was right at the transition where the ATF, the government, was rolling out the new e-form for um, process that was supposed to, to speed up uh, suppressor approvals. Um and initially it did, but it didn't take long for those dates to be extended and extended and extended. And the government is the government and it's still taking quite a bit of time. So long story short, I did not get that suppressor until after hunting season. Um, and I will be shooting with it uh, in the off season here to compare it to my Thunder Beast and a lot more. Before I say much more about the suppressor, though, I did want to comment on the silencer central process because we've gotten a lot of questions about it um, and kind of comparing like hey should I buy from silencer central or a local dealer those types of things I will say that everything went um, went smooth for the most part with the silencer central process in terms of I did everything from home Again, if, if you want to hear more about what I'm describing, like go back and listen to the Silencer Central episode. I'll leave a link in the show description. Submitting fingerprints and photos and approvals and getting the suppressor delivered to my door, all that. There was no hiccups. I will say it adds time for sure. So to get a suppressor, you have to wait on the government, right? Which is already going to take a while. The silencer central process and the back and forth of mailing things add even more time to that. And in my opinion, a pretty significant amount of time. So I'm not saying that, you know, it's bad, but I wouldn't consider it 
as my primary way to get a suppressor. If you have something that's more convenient, if you have a local dealer, um, if you have a silencer shop kiosk, again, silencer shop, not silencer central, um, but local dealers with silencer shop kiosks makes everything quick as well. It's a, it's a digital transfer, so you don't have to deal with snail mail of back and forth things like you do with silencer central. So I would say what I noted on my process with silencer central is that it, it added about two to three weeks on the front end, meaning if I compared, okay, I'm buying suppressor day one from a local dealer versus buying a suppressor day one from silencer central, there's basically an extra two and a half ish weeks again from my experience on purchase date to fully submitted to the government if you purchase from a local dealer that's going to happen very quick with silencer central the back and forth of fingerprints photos etc it adds an extra two and a half weeks on the back end i got notification from the government that my suppressor was approved and didn't actually get that suppressor in my hands from Silencer Central for pretty much exactly a month later. So another four weeks. To compare that, if you were to purchase through a local dealer, the very day that you get approval from the government, you can have your suppressor in your hands. So again, two and a half-ish weeks on the front, about four weeks on the back, so my experience with Silencer Central is that it added six weeks to the total process in addition to, you know, waiting on the government, which no one has control over. So just keep that in mind with Silencer Central. Is it great? You can do everything from home. Yes. Maybe that's wonderful if you don't have a dealer near you. But if you do, if I were buying again, I would go to a local dealer uh, and save six weeks get that suppressor even quicker so that's just a comment on the process good but with added weight again on the suppressor itself so the banish suppressor as i said i haven't shot it yet i will be doing more comparisons with it soon to my thunder beast and then also comparing more with the thunder beast ultra 5 and ultra 7 because i have both of those and i've gotten questions about what are the pros and cons, differences, and all reality between those two. So more to come on suppressors themselves. And also wanted to throw out there that since I got the Banish suppressor from Silencer Central and started that process almost a year ago at this point, they have more recently released a new Banish backcountry model. So it's a lighter option, uh, more comparable to the Thunder Beast um, and other titanium suppressors. Gunworks just released new titanium suppressors as well. Uh, other good options would be Dead Air. That's a, a brand, like they have a Nomad TI. So there's, you know, Thunder Beast has been what I've chosen. That's based on an, a lot of research in the past and then a lot of experience firsthand since then. And to be honest, this isn't a commercial. I. I don't have plans to look elsewhere. Um, if I were buying another suppressor today, I'd buy a Thunder Beast, honestly, without considering other options, really. But there are other good options on the market. Um, the Banish Backcountry could be something, the Gunworks, uh, 
the Dead Air Nomad Ti, um, CGS makes some good compressors, suppressors that have good specs. So I'm not saying Thunder Beast is the only way to go. It's just one of those areas for me where I have such a trust level, comfort level with it that um, I would gladly go that direction again. And I'd, I'd love to get an opportunity to test other suppressors, uh, to compare them, to have more experience with them. And maybe that's something I can do in the future. Uh, but obviously suppressors being high re- highly regulated, uh, not inexpensive, and just such a time investment to get them um, is one of those items that is hard for medium hands on a bunch of options and compare them. But of the options I do have, the different models of Thunder Beast and the Banish, etc., more to come on actual comparisons. And then I'll throw out there um, a, just a cool site. And I, we've mentioned this in the past, but it really is fascinating and they keep it up to date. But there's a site called Pew, P-E-W, PewScience.com, and they do a lot of independent testing of suppressors and very scientific, very analytical. If you want to completely nerd out on things like sound profiles and just a ton of metrics, then that's a cool site to check out. And I can leave a link in the show description for that as well. All right, this next topic kind of has to do with training, hiking, pack weight, etc. This question came through via SpeakPipe, and I'll go ahead and play it now. Robert here from North Carolina. Love the podcast. Really appreciate you guys. A uh, lot of information on there. Um, I have a bit of a tech type question or electronics question. I have a Garmin Instinct uh, watch that I use uh, for you know running and hiking. Uh, I hear you guys talk about Strava, and I looked into it and kind of got confused. Um, it looks like maybe there's a subscription for it. Um, I wanted to know how those two connect and Strava integrate with each other, like why you would need both or one or the other. Uh, maybe you guys could clarify that. Also, as, as a sidebar, I was wondering if you guys found any way to kind of document uh, pack weight in any of your apps. Um, seems like it would be cool to be able to indicate what kind of weight you are using. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks for the question, Robert. Um, and before we dive into that answer, just wanted to remind all of you guys listening, SpeakPipe, you can use from any device to leave us an audio message uh, and ask us a question, as Robert just did. Look for the link in the show description. Just go to SpeakPipe. Again, you can use your phone, computer, whatever device you would like to and leave us one of those messages uh, for future questions. To get to Garmin and Strava um, and tracking of hikes, yeah, Steve and I both use Garmin watches. Um, I've used the Instinct for years. I have a Phoenix now. Steve uh, uses the Instinct as well. Um, They're great watches and I really like tracking my hikes and activities. Um, I'm just kind of a data guy, nerd guy, and just like being able to look at history, previous performances, etc. You don't need Strava, but I would say that Strava for me is easier to look at comparisons over time, to track metrics, 
Um, it will show you, for example, just very natively, if you do the same um, route, like the same hike, it shows your performance over time automatically and how that's either changing, you know, increasing, decreasing, getting faster, et cetera, which is really cool. And I do a, a lot of running and trail running in addition to hiking. Um, and so I just find a lot of value in, in being able to see all that. He questioned Strava and the payment. It is free to use. There's a free level, which is honestly all that most folks need. There are paid options um, that add access to more metrics and more features. But again, most folks don't need that. And then in terms of using both, it may sound like a pain in the butt to have like, oh, I have Garmin and I have Strava and getting all this synced and whatever. They're meant to work together. Um, you basically just connect them one time. And I can leave a link to that in the show description, basically the help article on how to do that. But it's literally as simple as I want to go for a hike or a run or whatever, and I'm going to save that activity and I'm just going to use my watch and my watch is doing all of the work. It is using GPS and saving all the data and et cetera. And when that activity ends and my watch syncs to the Garmin app, like on your phone, Garmin will seamlessly send that same data over to Strava again, automatically once that connection has been made. And then now your activity, your hike, your run, whatever you just did, um, it exists in both places. It's in the Garmin app and it's in the Strava app. Um, and it will stay that way forever. They'll continue to sync to both places, which is great. In terms of tracking um, weight, there is no, there's no field for that. There's no feature. There's no like drop down of, hey, what was your pack weight? And you enter a number. I've just, for hikes where I'm, you know, carrying weight, I just, put that in the title of the activity. And so what that looks like for me is once again, uh, Garmin will send my activity over to Strava and by default Strava is just gonna call it morning hike or afternoon hike or what have you. And I will just go into that and click edit on the activity and I will change that to 60 pound hike or 75 pound hike or 80 pound hike. And it's really easy to, um, again, go back in time to look at all of your activities and right there in the activity title, see what weight that activity was with. And again, if you wanna make comparisons and do things like that, you can do it. There are description fields and other ways to track it, but I've just found that putting it right in the title of the activity itself um, gives me the quick glance view that I wanna see. So one, I do recommend the Garmin watches. They're fantastic. Uh, I mentioned I have the Phoenix. For most guys, the instinct is all they need. Um, so they're great if you guys are considering a smartwatch or something that can track activities, uh, have some mapping and GPS and you know use even in the field. Um, the instinct watches are tough to beat. And Strava, I do like it. You very likely do not need the paid version. Again, most of the free um, features are gonna be what most guys need. And setting those two up to talk to each other uh, is very easy. And again, I can leave a link in the show description for that. 
All right. Uh, another question came through, um, and similar to suppressors, this is a topic that I, I think I've already mentioned, but I want to do a deep dive on in the future, and that is on tripods, tripod heads, and um, the use of tripods for both glassing and shooting. But today's question was, I'm a big fan of the podcast. You guys have helped me an incredible amount in the process of becoming a capable backcountry hunter. Uh, I can happily attribute most, if not all of that success to the podcast and absorbing almost every episode for the past three years. Going into my third year of hunting, I'm upgrading my spotting scope along with a tripod this year and would like to hear some of your input. Everyone loves the VA5 tripod head, and for good reason, but most of the research I've done only covers the use of that head for glassing with optics and for photography. I'm having a hard time finding anyone that shoots off of this head with a rifle, and if it's a viable option, or if I should get a ball head to deal with the recoil from shooting. Any help is appreciated. So the Suray VA5, um, yeah, it's, it's a very popular head. Steve's been using it for years and years and years and turned me on to it years ago. Um, and it, for the price, for the weight, um, it's tough to beat for a fluid pan head that's fantastic for glassing with a spotting scope, with binos. Um, it's great head for sure, especially again for the price, for the weight. Can you shoot off of it? Yes, with an asterisk. And I will say right up front, I don't recommend it for several reasons. Um, first, the the VA5 head, um, as most tripods, tripod heads are, you know, they're compatible with Arca, which is like a, it's a dovetail, right? So just think of a dovetail, essentially. It's an Arca dovetail mount. The VA5 has a quick release design for their clamp, so clamping to the dovetail, where there's actually the quick release holds a pretty tight tolerance and it's an adjustable tolerance. Um, this gets confusing if you haven't used one, but I will just say that the, the locking design to clamp down on Arca, whether that is a bipod or sorry, a bino adapter or, you know, Arca for your spotter or Arca for a rifle. There is a standard for Arca, but not everyone follows it. And there's different variances, some of which are very minor. And often these variances go unnoticed in terms of the size of the dovetail. But because of the way that the VA5 is designed, these minor differences become problematic. And so what you'll run into is that when you set up the quick release, quick lock kind of tension to clamp to a device, like let's say your binos, if you're using a spotter or a rifle, that has Arca, but with a slightly different like spec or tolerance, sometimes they don't play well together easily. And so a great example would be if I set up a VA5 for um, my Swarovski spotter and then try to put my rifle in it, 
it it doesn't seat well. And so I basically need to have kind of call it different settings, if you will, for these different devices, which is problematic. So that's one problem. Again, I know that may be confusing if you haven't been hands-on with this head, but that's one problem. Another completely separate issue, and this is true of all tripod heads, is look at their load rating or load capacity. Don't confuse this with the weight of the tripod head itself. So um, there should be, if you're looking at tripod heads, at least two different um, specs for weight. One is how heavy is this item? Like what does the tripod head weigh? And then what is its working load or its load capacity? Um, you'll see different terms. Basically, this tripod head is meant to support X amount of weight. And for the VA5, their load capacity, their load rating is 6.6 .6 pounds. If you exceed that, that may be fine in a very uh, static way, meaning you can set 8 pounds on top of it, maybe you're fine. Maybe you can set 12 pounds on top of it, you're fine. This, be this load rating becomes especially critical with rifles, though, because shooting a rifle off a tripod is obviously not static. It's very dynamic. You have recoil, um, and then you also just have the stability of a device that has leverage. Like a rifle is going to have a much bigger, longer footprint than a spotting scope or a camera or binos. And so you're going to have weight away from the center of gravity of the tripod head. And especially the rifle, this max load rating becomes more important. And you want to generally not run right up to the max load rating of a tripod head, but you want the tripod head to easily exceed, particularly for shooting the load rating of, in this case, your rifle. So if the max load rating of the VA5 is 6.6 .6 pounds, most guys aren't shooting a rifle that weighs less than that. Again, fully outfitted, fully equipped with optics, uh, everything else most guys are shooting well beyond 6.6 .6 pounds and then you add in recoil and all the other things so the max load rating of the va5 is another reason i don't recommend that head for shooting another reason i don't recommend it is um and this is where you really have to begin to think what do i need but I will just say that there are downsides to shooting off of a fluid pan head, any fluid pan head, compared to a ball head, specifically for shooting a rifle. And there, there's some nuance variants, and I can get into nitty gritty details here, but the biggest one, just to touch on it today in this Monday Minute, would be leveling. You, you know, when you set up like the, you know, say you have a VA5, and you're setting that up, you are using the tripod legs to level and create a level platform for the VA5 so that the VA5 is level and then as you pan, you're staying on a level plane. Obviously with a ball head, if you set it up and the tripod legs aren't level, you can use the ball head because of its range of motion to create a level platform for whatever optic, rifle, etc., is attached to that ball head. And so when it comes to shooting, and especially any 
what begins to become extended distance, your rifle needs to be level. Um, shooting with a level rifle becomes very important. So now you have, let's say, a tripod with a VA-5 and you clamp your rifle into it and you're setting up for a shot and you realize that your rifle isn't level, you can't, as you could with a ball head, use the tripod head to level your rifle. When you're using the VA-5, you would have to use the tripod legs to level out the VA-5 to then level out your rifle. And it just isn't very usable compared to a ball head system. So, um, I prefer, and again, I have more content coming here and no necessarily easy answers. What I would say is you need to decide is using a tripod setup for shooting. Is shooting a priority or is it a possibility? Meaning there are going to be trade-offs hundred percent on things I didn't even mention today that need to be discussed on the trade-offs. There are trade-offs between what is the perfect head for shooting a rifle or not even perfect head, perfect tripod setup for shooting a rifle. And what is the perfect tripod setup for glassing? They're different. You're going to optimize for one or the other. And if you want one that can do both incredibly well, um, you can do it, but you're still you're still like threading a needle and, and making some decisions on pros and cons. And that's what I want to discuss more in depth on a different day. I will say, for me, if shooting is a decent priority in my tripod setup, what I prefer is a tripod with a ball head that can also pan, not using the ball, right? So essentially have the ball head and it's great for shooting and it can be pretty good for glassing, but I can also lock the ball and then have some sort of panning feature that's part of the head or have a panning base so that when I'm glassing in particular with a spotter, I can pan very effectively without using the ball portion of the ball head itself, if that makes sense. So that's my sweet spot of I need a tripod that's relatively light, relatively compact, relatively stable. Um, and for shooting, if I want something for shooting and glassing, I prefer to have a ball head that can also have a panning feature. Again, I will talk more about that different day, uh, probably do an article and a video and, and show some of the pros and cons of things I mentioned today and things I didn't even mention yet on that topic. All right, uh, last question for today, again, came through SpeakPipe, and I'll go ahead and play it now. Hey, guys, this is Connor, and I had some questions about your guys' bivy setups. My brother and I are looking at doing a mid to late September um, archery elk hunt. Um, it's my first backpack-type um, hunt out in Colorado, and um, we were planning on going with our dad, who's older, so we're going to do... Um, a base camp type setup for him so he can hunt closer to the, the base camp. And then my brother and I are hoping to do some um, some overnights into deeper country with um, some bivy setups. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you guys what, what were your reasons for choosing the 
uh, pinion bivy from Catavatic over the bristle cone. It looks like the main differences, from what I can tell, is just the, the mesh window, and so I'm guessing a little bit of more breathability, um, but I just kind of want to take your thoughts on it. Um, do you guys pack extra poles to run with your bivy, or do you just use your trekking poles? And then I also um, wanted to ask, I've, I've heard you guys talk about your bivvies a lot, um, but I haven't seen anything for what kind of tarps you're running with your bivvies. Do you guys make your own tarp? Um, do you have a company that you would suggest buying a tarp through? Um, what kind of suggestions do you have? Is there a certain material um, that you look for in a tarp? Um, just, just obviously, I know it's um, for for the chance of rain, so you're probably looking at something pretty lightweight, um, but also wanting something that's durable and it's going to last me. So just want to see what kind of suggestions that you guys have. Um, love the show, love the pod, not something I'm super familiar with, but I'm hoping to get a setup and um, camp with it a few times this uh, spring and summer and hopefully get comfortable with it so I'm ready for um, our fall elk hunt. So thank you guys for your help and what you do and appreciate the, the show and love listening to you guys. You guys take care and have a good one. All right, so there was quite a bit packed into that question. Um, I'll cut to the short and sweet. One first, he mentioned the catabatic gear bivvies in particular, and they have two different models, uh, which he mentioned the bristle cone and the pinion. Um, and yes, for the reasons uh, that he mentioned, I chose the pinion bivy. Um, it's very similar to the bristle cone bivy, uh, but with more mesh, more breathability, um, and that's why I went that direction. So the bristle cone is going to have a bit more resistance across the top um, still has mesh essentially at the face um, but doesn't have mesh that extends down your body as much and therefore is you know just not going to have quite as much uh, ventilation or breathability for me i went with the direction of more ventilation more breathability um, and that is with the pinion um, one uh, feature that's not completely unique to the catabatic gear bivvies, but um, it's certainly something they do that not all bivvies can do, and that's why he mentioned poles, is you can pull the foot end and head end of the bivy up so that you don't have mesh on your face, for example, or so that the bivy isn't uh, directly over your sleeping bag at the foot and essentially gives some space between the top of the bivy fabric and your face, your body, your sleeping bag. Um, I don't carry specific poles for that. I, If I use it, and I don't always, but if I use the feature where I'm pulling the fabric up off of me, um, I just figure it out. I will often, um, you know, if I have my trekking poles with me, those are certainly usable. Um, if I have a tripod with me, that's a great way to do it. Very often when I'm hunting with my bivy, I will set that bivy up under uh, the cover of a tree. Um, and I'm using that tree as cover for many reasons, um, as you may with a shelter, to create um, you know, cover. So I'm not getting as much dew uh, or moisture over me if there's like a very light precipitation even so often if there's an overhead branch that is another opportunity to uh, essentially tie the bivy to and pull that netting or pull the top fabric of the bivy bivy up off of me 
So that's what I do there. I don't carry um, extra poles to answer his question. Now, me mentioning setting it up under a tree and moisture and conditions also relates to what he mentioned to with a tarp. And, you know, something that Steve and I have obviously talked a lot about using bivvies. And one thing that gets overlooked is that it's not our only choice and it's not even necessarily our primary choice. It is a preferred choice, but only when the conditions... Um, I don't, I don't want to say allow it or, or optimal for it, but we certainly make decisions on what shelter am I going to use for this specific trip, this specific hunt, um, based on the conditions. And sometimes that's a bivy, and sometimes a bivy is the wrong choice. And of course, like that's convenient for us because we have different shelter options, uh, which ties into what we've talked about over the years is that a you're learning by experience over the years on what works well and what doesn't and then b over the years you are getting attaining purchasing gear that meets those conditions well and so for me a bivy is a choice is not always the choice um, sometimes i need a you know full-on hilleberg and sometimes i'm using a really lightweight all-in-one tent like my gossamer gear the one tent um, but for example, when Steve and I were hunting rifle elk season this past October, it was very mild and dry. And we, I think every single night we were away from the truck, it was just a bivy and we had no tarp. We were just setting up under a tree or even under the stars and the conditions were perfect for it. And when the conditions allow it, that's my favorite way to go. It's simple, it's light, it's easy, it's fast. You don't take up time setting up camp and tearing down camp. And I love being under the stars when I can. Um, and so it's great. For a tarp suggestion though, if you wanted to pair a bivy with a tarp for when it may be needed, um, Man, there's just endless, endless options out there. Um, the tarp that I had been using for a long time is no longer made. The tarp that Steve uses primarily is no longer made. Those are from a company called Jimmy's Tarps, um, and those specific models are not available, and I'm not even sure if Jimmy's Tarps is still, still selling things. Um, when it comes to a tarp for a bivy, um, Again, like it's hard to give you an answer without saying it depends, right? So you can get something with much more weather coverage. You can get something that's much more minimal and doesn't offer much for weather coverage, but will cover you. Um, you know, what are the temps? How much protection from wind do you need, et cetera, et cetera. Um, keep in mind things like footprint. Tarps can get um, deceivingly big and deceivingly complex very quickly when it comes to setup and how many stakes are required and what type of space is required, um, et cetera, et cetera. And again, the whole reason that I'm trying to use a bivy when I'm using the bivy is to keep things small and simple and efficient. A relatively affordable, um, lightweight option that's easily uh, available as well is from Gossamer Gear and they have uh, their solo tarp and their twin tarp, which are the same design, um, just different in size. One obviously to be solo and one larger to accommodate 
two folks. Uh, they work great with bivvies. Um, they are not a flat tarp. They're a catenary cut. I found them easier to set up than flat tarps. They set up with trekking poles. Um, they have a good tensioning system. They are a good choice of being relatively light, of pretty good value, um, and being really simple and easy to use. Um, you're looking at like 140-ish bucks, I believe. You can go double check that. Um, and again, like pretty affordable, pretty easy to use. You can go to something, um, Sil Nylon or Sil Poly Square Tarp of all different sizes. Again, when you get into like compare this Gossamer Gear Tarp I just meant to I just mentioned to say a flat tarp or a square tarp or rectangle tarp. The flat tarp, the square tarp, rectangle tarp is going to be more versatile. It is going to be able to set up in more configurations. But again, that comes at the cost of a little bit of complexity and a little bit of learning curve and often uh, more necessity, more sensitivity to things like the number of stakes, the number of guidelines, etc. With something like the Gossamer Gear Tarp I mentioned, it's meant to be set up essentially, for the most part, one way. Um, and so it's 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 hemming you in, it's boxing you into, hey, this is the way this tarp works. But with that comes the simplicity of this tarp was cut a certain way to be set up a certain way. It has guile points at certain spots to set it up that certain way. Um, and again, there's just this trade-off of simplicity um, and then on the other end a lot more options but at the cost of complexity and then to get into materials um, you can spend 600 bucks on a lightweight tarp i mean you can go full dcf uh, something like that or you can get into um, again sil nylon sil poly and be much more uh, cost effective so I'm not saying that, you know, the Gossamer Gear Tarp that I mentioned, um, I've been happy with mine. I'm not saying it's the only way to go for Bivy Tarp. There's a lot of options that you could consider. Um, I would think through things like, am I getting this tarp specifically to use as a Bivy um, over shelter, or do I need a tarp that provides many other purposes and is much more versatile, but realizing that that comes with its own, you know, those pros of versatility come with a downside in terms of complexity. So yeah, those are options to look at as always. Um, hit me up if you have more questions and for you, the listeners, if you guys have questions for future episodes, once again, you can just send those via email to podcast at exomongear.com or look for the link in the show description to leave us one of those audio messages but that's a wrap for today. I hope you guys have benefited uh, from hearing some answers to those questions. As always, we do appreciate you tuning in and supporting the show and would love to hear from you. Maybe it's not a question for a Q&A, but maybe you have a topic suggestion, a guest suggestion or something like that. Reach out, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't yet, hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon.